Section 38 of the Story of Japan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. The Story of Japan by Robert Van Bergen. Mutsuhito, Emperor of Japan. On November 3rd, 1852, while Commodore Perry was making preparations to sail for Japan, the present emperor, Mutsuhito, was born in the old Tenno Palace in Kyoto. His father, Emperor Komei, had lived, as had the descendants of the sun goddess for so many hundreds of years, in absolute seclusion from the world, seeing only the faces of the members of his immediate household, who prostrated themselves in the dust whenever they approached their august sovereign. Within the palace he reigned supreme, and it is more than probable that he imagined that his will was law throughout the empire. But the regents were masters of Japan, and at the time of Mutsuhito's birth there seemed very little likelihood that the heir to the throne would be more than a shadow ruler. He was taught to read and write Chinese as well as Japanese characters, to reverence the gods, his ancestors, and above all his father as their living representative. He learned from his earliest youth to behave himself with the dignity due to his birth and to act upon the suggestions of such of his attendants as by birth and rank were entitled to offer them. He had absolutely no amusements. He did not know what the words playmate and toy meant. To the Japanese boy from samurai up to tenno, there exists no such thing as play or fun. Life, to him, is a sober existence revolving around one center, duty. The seeds of revolution planted during the 250 years of peace under the descendants of Ieyasu had begun to sprout. Perry's arrival acted like a warm rain after a prolonged drought, and signs appeared everywhere that the harvest was at hand. Did those hermits within the palace walls note the signs of the times, or were they too august to be informed that their dwelling was guarded more jealously than ever, that armed samurai, trusted counselors of powerful clans, were hiding in the old capital, and that the Yamato Damashi was abroad, looking toward the descendant of the gods and imploring help from him? I do not think it likely that Emperor Komei knew anything of what was going on, but in all probability the boy Mutsuhito was kept pretty well informed. His attendants, while he was still heir apparent, could and would talk before him, and the lessons thus gained were a good preparation for his future career. We have seen that Emperor Komei died early in 1867, and the boy, not yet fifteen years old, ascended the throne amid the struggles of a civil war. His actions were, of course, determined by the Kugai, in conjunction with the leading samurai of the Allied clans. This council communicated its decisions to the imperial princes, or Mia, who in their turn imparted them to the Tenno. Thus it was decided that he should personally receive the foreign ministers, that he should marry the present empress, a daughter of the house of Ichijo, and that he should leave Kyoto and take up his residence in Yedo, thereafter to be called Tokyo, or Eastern Capital. From his education, the boy emperor had acquired two valuable qualities, obedience to the suggestions of trusty counselors, and that quiet submission to duty which is the foundation of character in any boy. He was the first of his race, since more than a thousand years ago his ancestors had withdrawn from active life, 
to show himself freely to his people. He discarded in public the old national dress, and in his official life conforms to the customs and manners of a foreign court, although within the privacy of his own apartments he prefers the dress and food of his youth. But what an era does his reign present to his people? Well may it be called Meiji, enlightened progress. Under his reign the palpable differences of caste have disappeared. No more daimyo or kuge with their medieval privileges. No more attacks on harmless merchants by playful samurai bent upon testing the metal of their swords. No more edda, outcasts of society, but equality of all before the law, with a slight reservation in favor of the samurai or official class. And with these changes, wealth and prosperity have come to the people. The intercourse with other nations has brought new industries. When the Tenno first entered Yeddo, he spent twelve days on the fatiguing journey from the old imperial city. Now the iron horse brings him there in less than twenty-four hours. More than three thousand miles of railroad have been built with Japanese capital and enterprise, and as many more are in the course of construction. The telegraph conveys the emperor's commands to the farthest corner of his empire. Telephone and electric lights testify to Japan's ability to appreciate the inventions of this age. Factories have been built and furnish labor to tens of thousands of workmen, while wages have risen and savings increase. And Japan's army and navy, too, her greatest pride, have kept pace with the progress of the times and have compelled respect from abroad. Japan has taken her place as one of the great powers of the earth. Her flag begins to be known on the seas. Her merchant vessels are seen in Europe, Australia, and on the coast of America, as well as in the eastern parts of the Pacific. Her scholars compete with those of Western universities. Western civilization hails Japan's advent. Mutsuhito and his empire have gained the admiration and respect of the world, and the world acknowledges the high qualities of the ruling class, the samurai or shizoku. They will be regarded with suspicion unless they forego their scheme of revenge and decide to enhance the glory of their country and its tenno by other means than a career of conquest. But for what they have accomplished thus far, American boys and girls will heartily join with those of Japan in shouting, Nippon Banzai, Long Live Japan. End of section 38. Recording by Colleen McMahon. End of The Story of Japan by Robert Van Bergen.